0: life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com
1: in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi i'm marcus smith host of the constant wonder podcast The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
0: Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hat. We're really excited today, uh, in part because before we came on air, we've been trying with our guest to explain to Alina why purple and orange is disgusting and you should hate them when they go together, especially if we're talking Clemson. Alina, who is here?
2: We have with us Melissa DeVelvis, who's a postdoctoral fellow at the University of South Carolina, South Carolina. Go Cox! <laughs> <laughs> Specialising in women and gender studies in the 19th century. So, today she's joining us to talk about women, specifically nurses in the Civil War, which is something we're actually really excited to talk about. So, hi, welcome, Melissa.
0: Hello, hello. Thank you guys for having me. I love to talk about the Civil War, especially how gnarly it gets. Um, I don't know what's wrong with me that I love the more gore the more i'm like oh how oh, fun
1: you are gonna get on so well with us uh, i'm actually <laughs> embarrassed for how excited we were earlier on when we did a whole podcast on decapitation and osteoarchaeology mm. and we were just loving it a little bit too much a bit we fun. love
2: gore the more gore it is the better it is for us so
1: it is but speaking of gnarly you're in the most toxic place in america just about at the moment how is south carolina
0: Oh, goodness. Um, Let's see. I'm currently an at-will employee, so how much can I say? Um, (laughs) Let's just say that speaking of the Carolinas, um, the University of North Carolina announced yesterday after going back for one uh, week that they were going to switch to uh, remote learning because they uh, had a 13% positive test rate in their covid testing and that has not deterred the university of south carolina from going back to face to face on thursday so thursday.
1: you guys have all, are, are you teaching there as well
0: i am yeah I'm you've all had to three. do
1: like wills like you're going to war haven't you
0: pretty much or at least um kind of have a almost like a substitute teacher ready for you if you should have to quarantine. <laughs> this is
1: the thing. I'm not going to name them, but this is another friend of mine who is tenured in South Carolina at another college Who basically said, like, they don't really care if you die. They just want to make sure someone's going to teach your classes. <laughs>
0: i will will neither confirm nor deny that
1: statement let's move on to the american civil war because it is less gnarly than what we've got ourselves into here so let's start with standards for women of the time um so this is the victorian period for us what's expected of women in this period in the south
0: uh yes so you see um some of the victorian norms that you all might expect uh make their way down into the south and then of course as southerners they make it their own um the uh woman of the home was supposed to be the center the cornerstone of piety um she should um be just naturally good. it was in her in her nature. there are these inherent god given differences between man and woman, which these things probably sound familiar to hmm. anyone um <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah, no, this all sounds, when I explain it to students, they're like, yeah, that sounds right. Um, but there was also this idea, especially as uh, Northern women were increasingly uh, going out into the workforce a little bit more or traveling outside of the home and experiencing a slight degree more independence. Um, in response, Southern women, Southern white women, of course, really doubled down on um that they were in the home and keeping it pure and everything outside of the home was impure like politics although I I see their point there Um, but uh, the working world Um, as far as courtship goes uh, they had a chaperone at all times when they were meeting their potential betrothed Um, although I'm sure people got randy in their free time uh, you don't see it happening or at least being spoken of because they were very very um, kept kept the legs closed, just, I suppose. I don't know how... Um, They're how basically
1: all melly from Gone with the Wind. Yep, yep, pretty
0: much, pretty uh... much. The Scarlets of the world, um, maybe if they were as wealthy as Ms. O'Hara, might be able to get away with some of these things. Um, <laughs> yeah. But so the idea is to be very pious. Um, you don't have a lot of... Um, touch with the opposite sex there's a lot of courtship rituals very strict manners um i try not to sympathize with them too much considering that they uh, a lot of these elite women uh, exploited the labor of enslaved african-americans their entire life but it does seem like a very sequestered lifestyle where your goal is a good marriage and once you achieve that marriage you probably go and live on the plantation
1: um what's great <laughs> is we were interviewing someone else who grew up in alabama yesterday and she phrased it brilliant didn't she alina when she said that basically uh, mm. at this period you have women um, rich people just building their own prisons
0: yeah yeah essentially um and the single-minded devotion to one single staple cash crop and continuing to buy more slaves and more land when you were in debt, like everyone in South Carolina, which is my sp- specific area of focus, was just drowning in debt and just kept, kept loaning things out. Um, and that was the state of the union when they just chose to secede. So, um, so that's Southern um, elite white women. There was a very, very small Southern middle class in this time period. Um, and then of course, uh, the way to get ahead Uh, which we kind of think of today when we think of middle class women was to uh, act like the elites as much as you possibly could. Mm -hmm. And so you see a lot of emulation from uh, middle class women, especially in the north, um, increasingly seeing their ability to stay at home and not go to work as a sign of class and status. Um, So this is kind of the world we're looking at when suddenly a war comes and men leave the home to go die, and suddenly these women who are supposed to be just these pure people who don't get their hands dirty are thrown into um, a crisis, essentially. What about the lower classes? So we have in the South, um, a lot of uh, poor women obviously are having to uh, work on farms with their husbands Uh, in many cases they're often even leasing out these farms from the elite women and um, so they are kind of popping this bubble of the idea that southern whites are better because they don't have to work the field like their enslaved counterparts and so um, lower class women are um, existing totally free not free oh goodness but outside of this fantasy that the south has Woven for itself. Um, you see increasing um, young women going into factory labor to make a quick buck. Uh, just because it's still a very agrarian economy doesn't mean you don't see the growth of factories, especially in cities and coastal towns. And then in the north, um, we're seeing very early, so if we're looking at before the American Civil War, so it's 1860 is when you start to see secession. Um, we're not at the our biggest industrial moment, but there is an increasing uh, move to factory labor. Um, and so while they are working alongside, uh, well, not alongside, there's a lot of factories that are kind of for women only. Um, and it is this increasing mobility and workforce of women that actually makes the more wealthy uh, whites of America even more uncomfortable uh and even more dedicated
2: to kind of protecting their position in the home um so then the civil war comes what role uh did women play at the time what was expected of them and what kind of things have they seen experience so
0: we've had uh civil war historians have for quite a while now um discussed the blurring lines between Battlefront uh, and Homefront, Battlefield and Homefront, and that this is kind of a very strange binary that does not actually exist in reality, especially since they're practically going through towns and just picking fights in fields near said town. Mm -hmm. And so women are everywhere in the Civil War. Um, Though we can never prove how many actually disguised as soldiers and fought, that doesn't mean that to be a soldier is the only way to participate in the civil war. Um, we're seeing, uh, we've read about quite a few kind of spies who hide messages in their clothing or just go about their daily social life and kind of travel with memos. Um, you see a lot of women on the home front here. I say we shouldn't talk about home front and I do it anyway. Um, <laughs>
1: We were they're, just gonna pretend it didn't happen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well they are so they're remaining in their personal homes. There I did mm. it. Um that are making homespun clothing. Uh they're throwing a ton of charity galas. You see a lot of um women's um ladies aid societies that are uh fundraising uh goods and things to send to soldiers. Uh, it, it's a lot more institutionalized in the North than it is in the South. Um, the Confederacy is a bureaucratic nightmare from the very beginning. Uh, but even in the North, you do see a lot of women that are more inclined to send aid to men from their state than other states. Uh, so you do see a little bit of um, home bias there. And so those are that's what some people are doing at home. Um, but then at the same time, Uh, that's ignoring the fact that we have hundreds of thousands of formerly enslaved and currently enslaved African-Americans who are essentially emancipating themselves Um, first listed as contraband. They are seizing this moment to go to um, the North or at least the union lines and achieve their own freedom, which is incredibly dangerous in this time period, especially since the union lines are never, um, kind of set in stone. um, If they're defeated or if they move, do you follow them? And so undertaking these very, very dangerous travels in which they're freeing themselves. And if they're not freeing themselves, these women are refusing to do work or slowing down work at plantations, which is, you know, the powerhouse of the Southern economy. So they're crippling it from the inside. Um, And then even more, uh, like our favorite Harriet Tubman are leading raids up rivers in South Carolina and um, enslaved people once freed, once uh, Tubman and the Union Army come through, are then burning the plantation homes. So we see this resistance going on throughout. Um, And then finally we have those who are following the both union and confederate troops um we have washerwomen. we have a lot of cooks uh in the southern states so many of them almost exclusively are either uh, poor white women often immigrant women and also enslaved women um the myth of the enslaved black soldier is usually just um They are enslaved, and so the Confederate soldier just brought their slaves with them to take care of them Mm -hmm. on the battlefield. And so you see um, a lot of these daily tasks that normally would have been done by enslaved labor are continually done by enslaved laborers. And um, you do read stories of um, what today would be kind of modern sex workers also following armies around. Um, and so women are everywhere in the camps as well. And that's something that you don't see in visualizations of the civil war. In my opinion, maybe they don't really want to show how many women who are supposed to be pure and away from war are being crucial to this war effort. Um, and unfortunately it's these, um, laborers such as laundry women, which was not a very desired task in this time period because doing laundry without a laundry machine is, a uh,
1: doing it with a laundry machine is shit i hate it, I, hate it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think i'd rather do laundry than clean so i i swing the other way ladies
1: this is true oh. but tell us about the nurses yes yes so I, I wanted to get everyone out of the way before i <laughs> yeah. got to my nurses <laughs> um
0: and so the nurses that i have been looking at now with the um with the virus, which is you know, preventing me from actually getting to the archives, are published records of um, these nurses' diaries, which have been incredibly helpful. And I'm really encouraged by the fact that I've found new things and something that's been published for so long, uh, which makes me more hopeful for when I finally get to the archive. Um, but so the diaries that I see are of nurses who worked the more kind of respectable role of nursing. Uh, And so they're not the ones for the most part when they at least first begin these ladies who sign up as nurses, both union and Confederate are um, they're not the ones who are cleaning the wounds. First off, they become familiar with redressing wounds and bandages, bandages very, very soon. Mm -hmm. Um, But the literate women are usually almost in a superintendent position. They are kind of, scheduling the meals and planning the meals and making sure that there's supplies allocated to their hospitals. Um, And they are sitting with soldiers and holding their hands and reading to them and things like this. And so even this is not the idea of nursing that we're quite used to. While there are a very few number of female surgeons during the Civil War, um, very, very few, mostly they are in kind of an extension of their home role, which is to be the nurse at the bedside of your husband or your brother. Like that is your womanly Christian role. Mm. And so they're extending that role to soldiers to make it socially appropriate for them to even be there in the first place. And now my kingdom for an illiterate uh, woman who was maybe the cook for the hospital or had to wash the bandages of the hospital um, records of which it's so hard to find of them as they are not, leaving a record and are not yeah. compensated as well as these nurses. That being said, even these nurses that I'm speaking of who were in kind of this more authoritative role uh, very quickly find that needs must and are soon having to shave the face of a man that probably at home, they would have said, do not touch me, you poor farmer man how dare you exactly like (laughs) how dare you not move aside for me on the street um and here they are shaving their faces touching the face of a man they have never met before breaking so many cultural taboos and frantically trying to justify this as taking care of a loved one even though this is a complete stranger and so the civil war immediately takes away so many of these cultural rules about touch um, and men are weeping to be touched in their hospital bed, just like the kind hand. I've heard so many records of people just weeping because someone has, you know, been nice to them in these hospitals. It's really, really kind of depressing, and mm. make all the more poignant during COVID. Um, when I just want to be hugged constantly. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: know. Oh, it's not the same touching elbows, is it? It's really not.
0: I've never been more happy to have a dog that likes to sit on my chest
2: to get as close to me as possible.
1: Yeah, my cat has been like lim- limpet on me for the last six months and it's great. So it's it's been... Staffy
2: too. The Staffy does exactly the same thing, even though Truly... I just stupid.
1: He is stupid. He attacks a hedgehog with his face and wondered why it hurt. Oh my
2: goodness. When
1: you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. Things like touching people and that. how is their mental health affected by this? Is this something you can look at as a researcher, how they manage to cope emotionally not only with this like shaking up of everything they hold culturally dear, but also that they must be seeing some pretty horrible shit
0: yes, yes, and they've seen they've seen death before I mean they're living in the nineteenth century before we understand what germ theory is, mm-hmm. but they are never seeing men's bodies amputated or these gushing wounds i've read about an oozing brain wound that a woman was talking about in which uh, apparently the um matter did not stay within his skull um and so they're seeing things that would scar pretty much anyone and not only are they seeing these things they are forced to act on them and help and dress these bandages and at one point a woman even described how they had a makeshift hospital in an old barn and she was helping a soldier dress bandages and then I think, or a soldier, a doctor, and then I think she fetched him a meal and he ate his meal. And it was only later that she realized that she and the doctor had been eating in the same room where all of the bloody bandages were. And Mm. I think her conclusion to that story within her diary was one can get used to anything. And so what you see here is uh, the use of the word benumbing and numb. And so um, we'll talk in a moment about Cornelia Hancock. She very much says that uh, her senses were benumbed. And so there's a lot of kind of this hardening. And as a sensory historian who looks into the meaning of not just what we can see with our eyes, um, in many ways, they've kind of had to numb their hands to this touch of a strange man, but also numb their hands to the touch of um I don't know a gaping war wound um they have to physically become accustomed to the smell of bodies and hospitals uh when they first approach a hospital I believe one uh, southern nurse approached Monticello uh Jefferson's Monticello which was a hospital mm-hmm. and immediately talked about how the smell just wafted into her room and made many people physically sick um But then slowly before they move on, they just stop talking about the smell only to resume talking about it the moment they move somewhere else. So it's a it's literal numbness, but it's also an emotional numbness Um, to death. You can trace if someone has kept a long diary that they publish in publish right in regularly when they first arrive at the front They are writing so much about everything that happens, every victim, all of the things they see, and then slowly it becomes almost like like a logbook of what they did or maybe who died. And so they have to physically just, even in their writing, it shows that they are physically becoming less, not moved necessarily, but it's no longer this wild event that must be talked about. And if anything, because it's not going to end anytime soon, maybe they aren't writing out of self-defense. And so while I'm not going to go into their brains and say, this woman has PTSD, which is a very controversial thing that when we talk about trauma in the civil war, a lot of people say, well, how do you know? I'm saying, I'm not, I'm just saying, these are words that the women are using and I can trace the frequency with which they talk about these things. And slowly as they get used to it, they just s- stop. Mm. <laughs> Only you
1: see to... it in World War One as well, Like yes. you get to the point where they're, they're not keeping the diary or they're just scrolling a few words or, and the best one I've got is this eloquent kid from eton college who's writing for the westminster gazette and then he gets to passchendale and by the point of october he just scrolls hell across two pages in his diary and that's his entry so
0: we um as uh sensory and emotions historians of the civil war are very very indebted to our world wars um one and two scholars because this is when you first start to see quote shell shock um and so we have to sometimes say well theorists of this time have seen this so we're gonna bring (laughs) that back a little bit
2: (laughs) it makes sense makes
0: sense
1: i mean civil war is the big first big industrial war isn't it
0: Mm -hmm. and it's it's the first home front war that americans have had uh on this scale with the exception of mexican-american war and to an extent 1812 but it's the first of this generation really So you've mentioned a wider context
2: of PTSD. So how was mental illness viewed in the 19th century, especially for women?
0: Okay. So in some ways, the further I go into studying mental illness in this time period, the more I think that they kind of get it more than we do. Um, As far as the relationship between external environments and our, um, uh, inner emotions and kind of symptoms and things like this. And so, um, first to kind of talk about uh, how mental illness was viewed in general. Um, Before the Civil War, the idea of suicide was viewed as something that was incredibly dishonorable. Um, But then after the Civil War, so many men were committing suicide that um, it actually changed their view of mental illness to make it more of kind of the noble Christian sufferer. And so sometimes it's kind of Necessity makes people become more sympathetic to things like this. Um, but so before we had um, Sigmund Freud on the scene um, who redefined anxiety as more of a psychological term um, and one's unconscious uh, anxiety and nervousness, which they used nervousness quite a bit, um, which, you know, I never really thought about. But we're literally talking about the nerves. Um, <laughs> when yeah. I say nervous <laughs> for some reason did not compute whatever. Um So anxiety and nervousness were considered physiological manifestations of your nervous system. And so if your nervous system was not governed correctly, the human body was unstable and was constantly vulnerable to, as I mentioned, outside environments like your work, your climate, your food, and your drink. And so therefore, both your body and your mind are extremely susceptible to Um, environmental pressures. And from the senses, nerves gathered information about your environment and then the nerves would cue your muscle movements. And so therefore, if you're in a great state of anxiety, it could disrupt your body's entire performance. Um, And because women were expected to be more emotional and therefore more vulnerable to anxiety and nerves, um, experiencing too much nerves could effectively paralyze you. And so you see a lot of women kind of lounging uh, due to headaches and things that they just called nerves, like an, an excess of nerves would cause them to have to have a lie down. And I know we, we like to joke about, especially with um, the cult of uh, sensibility, this fainting, um, but honestly... It, it, in many ways, it sounds like they are just truly so overwhelmed with these mental burdens that they just got to lie down.
1: Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's people like, that, like that? that on Twitter now, professing to be feminists. So, <laughs> what are you gonna do?
2: I'm like Honestly, that. I get filled with nerves. I must lie down. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. You know? No, you
1: just want a nap. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's true.
0: <laughs> but I do think, and we've kind of seen today that, like. Um, As someone who suffers from, uh, you know, very frequent migraines, uh, sometimes I swear I trigger them from just having muscle tension related to my nerves and grinding my jaw. And so this interrelationship between the mind and the body, um, in many ways, almost gave more medical understanding to mental health. Uh, than we do today in some ways. I'm not saying that, like, we should go back to 19th century medicine, but um, in many cases today, sometimes someone with anxiety or depression is just kind of dismissed for it being all in your head, when really it's, it's in many ways, it's kind of the same bodily totality that you see understood in the 19th century. Now, there's been a lot of crazy, wacky medicine in the 19th century, and because If women experience any kind of emotion, it might be an excess of nervousness. Um, They were often dismissed for having nerves when they were probably just expressing how they really felt about something. Um, They were more prone to hysteria, which um, after the Civil War, that's when you start to hear about hysteria being tied to, um, well, maybe we'll just use this uh, feather duster uh, masturbation tool and it will make you feel all better. So, (laughs) It's this thought process that leads to the both fear and lack of understanding about female sexuality. Although Mm. you don't see that too much, at least in the U S before the civil war, but they are very much kind of built upon each other. And this is also why um, women who express anything are often kind of sent to uh, women's insane asylums. Uh, And so very often, even though they seemed to understand some things about mental health that we might think of today uh, often the answer was to either um, remove them from society or often just give them a ton of laudanum, uh, which for your readers prob- readers, listeners probably know is an opiate and so um, women were on opioids constantly it was prescribed for everything, and so you see a lot of kind of descriptions of kind of a dreamlike state, and now I just keep reading backwards and i 'm like, "Were you on drugs?"
1: Yes <laughs> on drugs. <laughs> How do they link the mental well-being with physical wellness?
0: So, yeah, um, you can see this, uh, especially, I think I mentioned, with smell Mm. um, will make you physically sick, but also um, with noise. You see a lot of, um, in city hospitals of the Civil War, they'll even block streets uh, so that the bustling of traffic uh, will not um, distract and disrupt the patients because they thought that they were getting sicker because the noise was distracting and making them ill. So there is this kind of connection here between the senses and mental health and then physical illness or lack of wellness. Um, you also see this with some women, the, the cries of the wounded kept them up at night and they were too ill to go on. And instead of ascribing that to sleeplessness, it was instead kind of the sound of the wounded, which I think is wild. Um, They are paralyzed with nerves when they hear um, too many uh, cannons and firing and things like this, which is, again, familiar to anyone who's kind of read into war narratives. Um, So that kind of paralysis and physical effect. Um, But then also you see uh, very commonly a diagnosis of Civil War soldiers with something called nostalgia, which... Today, we would probably just call homesickness, mm. but there are bulletins from like military doctors during the Civil War who are saying, this man has been diagnosed with nostalgia. I recommend a long leave in which he goes home to his family. And um, soldiers with nostalgia, if they are already sick, they will probably die. And so there's not necessarily a death from homesickness or nostalgia, but there was this idea that if you're already sick, nostalgia will, and homesickness will, almost definitely make you more inclined or speed your death. And so essentially what they're talking about here, at least to me, from a 21st century perspective, is just depression. Yeah. Like, these soldiers are so depressed that if they're already fighting a wound and fighting illness, they will not have kind of the mental fortitude to to continue fighting it and the answer for them a medical leave is just because they are depressed and so it's recommended they go home and this is serious enough that the military is requesting this essentially
2: so in the context of nurses in the civil war how do religious orders fall into the narrative
0: yes so uh this is very much the realm of um First of all, just these these women nurses are supposed to be doing this out of their Christian piety. It is one of the reasons that uh, justifies their being allowed to go and touch all these strange men um, and be on a battlefront. But um, you also see a lot of um, women that are even sponsored by their local church. Um, Cornelia Hancock, uh, who I will talk about again in a second, um, she was a Quaker, and so that very much kind of motivated her own actions. Um, You also see uh, within the uh, Union and the Federal Army, the uh, United States Christian Commission, uh, which furnished supplies, medical services, and uh, Bibles to Union troops. Uh, They had um, a Ladies Christian Commission. Uh, within the U.S. Sanitary Commission, which is where a lot of the um, nurses came from, um, there were a ton of um, Protestant chaplains who were paid by these organizations to go around. And then also, um, Louisa May Alcott was working with the Ladies' Christian Commission in her own nursing experience during the Civil War. So on a base level, there's already a ton of organizations here, but the most, if you wanted the best care around, you went to the nuns. Um, 600 nuns from 12 religious, uh, communities around, um, the, uh, what is, I guess the United States, cause it was U S army nurses. So 600 mm-hmm. nuns were U S army nurses during the civil war. And I don't have the number for Confederate nuns, but I know they absolutely existed, um, in the South. Uh, and so these orders, uh, were, absolutely volunteers they asked sometimes for just necessities of life uh to you know keep eating food um Mm -hmm. and they um served both on the battlefield and in hospitals um eventually a a group of sisters of mercy uh on a union steamboat uh were actually caught under fire from a confederate gun battery and continued to work uh so have literally been in the war and uh lincoln even called the catholic nuns around dc uh, veritable angels of mercy and he continued to say that of all the forms of charity and benevolence seen in the crowded wards those of the catholic sisters were among the most efficient um and this is around i believe stanton hospital and again i believe they're also sisters of mercy um and then he finally says um more lovely than anything in art are the pictures that remain with me of these sisters going on their rounds of mercy among the suffering and dying. And so, um,
1: yeah, isn't that a lovely memory? It is. It is. Especially a weirdo.
0: <laughs> love to see people just dying, but Oh, there's, there's a nun next to them and they're being very um, merciful
1: about it. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure i would just be set. like, this is awful.
0: Yeah. I'd be like, hi, this is a beautiful, um, Thanks for appreciating that I'm here, I guess. But um, people are dying, sir. But uh, Lincoln himself was a very morbid man, so maybe that's part of it.
1: You've mentioned her a couple of times, Cornelia Hancock. Who is she? She's an independent nurse, but tell us about her and her experiences.
0: Yes, so she is um, a favorite of mine. Uh, I bring her up just because, I mean, so many women, and you'll have to trust me, I guess, now on audio, but I swear I've written (laughs) about it before. Um, So many women are kind of repeating the same gradual sensory and emotional numbness uh, and hardening, but uh, no one says it as well as Hancock, so I keep just quoting her, and I'm like, I promise other people said this, just not as well. (laughs) Yes. So... Hancock, as I mentioned, she was a Quaker woman. Um, She applied to join the U.S. Sanitary Commission, and she was, at the time, the only person turned down by Dorothea Dix, um, who was the superintendent of U.S. Army nurses. Um, She personally refused to enroll Hancock because – the U.S. Army nurses were to be mature in years, a.k.a. at least 30, um, in plain almost a homeliness in dress and by no means liberally endowed with personal attractions. Basically, you couldn't be hot. Um, yeah. It would distract the soldiers and lead to impure thoughts. And, um, again, it's it's a really Like that is the that, woman's fault. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> They're just too hot to control anyone around it's them. It's always
2: the woman's fault, isn't it? Mm-hmm.
1: When in
0: doubt... What did the woman do? Um, <laughs> and not not wanting to throw any sympathy Dorothea Dix's way. I mean, she did, she saved lives, but she was also a pretty anti-Catholic. So she didn't work very well with the nuns either. Um, so she's not coming off well in this podcast. So I don't <laughs> <with that>. um, <laughs> but I mean, I guess in a very, very small and not, entirely useful explanation um this is a point where it is still kind of wild to even be around this many strange men without a chaperone so i can see why at least she would be worried about kind of these hospital romances but yeah no um cornelia was 24 um or 23 going on 24 she ages up my bad um and so she was uh, the only female nursing volunteer to be rejected um it did not stop her uh Her brother-in-law, her sister's husband, uh, Henry T. Child, was a volunteer surgeon. And so he pretty much just volunteered to take her to Gettysburg uh, in July 1863. And so she traveled around with him and actually kind of had more freedom uh, (laughs) as a result of not kind of being beholden to anyone. Mm. Um, And her family, of course, was incredibly uh, supportive of this as Quakers were um, heavily invested in Well, while they loved peace, they also were some of the first um, white members of the Underground Railroad and very devoted to kind of black liberation in a way that a lot of other whites were not. Um, And so she uh, arrived at Gettysburg on um, three days after the battle and was just immediately hit with the stench, Um, helped at Gettysburg, and then in 1864, she joined the Second Corps and worked with them at their hospital in Virginia. She also went to the Battle of the Wilderness. She was at the Siege of Petersburg, um, and she also worked at the hospital in City Point, which was a very um, well-known hospital at the time. And so, though she didn't join until 63, she was um, really in the thick of it. Um, And then after the war, which Hi, someone needs to do a biography of her. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'll just never develop my dissertation into a book and just write about Cornelia. Um, just do it. She sounds <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, she gets awesomer. Yeah, great language to develop this. Um, she opened a school for um, a, basically a freedman school in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, which is um, literally just across the bridge from Charleston, for those of you who are not from here. Um, <clears throat> essentially taught literacy, uh, and she also founded several charity organizations. She was a board member for the Children's Aid Society from 1883 to 1895. By that point, she had gone back to uh, Pennsylvania, so she helped children that were orphaned after the Johnstown flood, which I've been told was devastating, um, and then also was president of the National Association of Army Nurses of the Civil War um and she never married she um eventually retired to atlantic city can't relate ever wanting to retire to atlantic <laughs> city maybe
1: she liked gambling is all right maybe I can she guess.
0: loved gambling i bet she probably liked the sea air with what she had learned about um the belief in bad smells causing bad health uh especially in the civil war she'd smelled enough to- bad
1: shit so she moved to the seaside let's go with yep.
2: that yep I think Atlantic City was much nicer back then than it is now, no offense, oh I'm sure I'm sure
0: but I never as as a snob who is close enough to the Gulf of Mexico, i never I always love to kind of make fun of you, poor souls who have to deal with the Atlantic Ocean um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not that you're smug at all
0: no, 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 and it's not like I have been to the beach, I promise you 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 might have seen people at Myrtle Beach just getting full. Southern redneck, no mask up in there. And I have stayed at home with my cuddly dog, I promise. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so Cornelia lived a very long life um, and really a life of service. And I haven't read anything from her that makes her super problematic or anything like that. Um, I I feel like I should always kind of clarify this because some of the women, even though they want to help Union soldiers, they clearly have some class prejudices and even people who signed up to help um, African-Americans free and enslaved um, sometimes have uh, ideas of superiority and stuff that is really gross to pick through. But Cornelia, um, she learned on the job and she really, she, she seems to be one of the good ones. But yes. uh, if I read more and I find out more, um, I can at least say that she, she was a good
2: nurse. So, I'm gonna well, I'm gonna bring up my, one of my favorite authors because I do love her books, and I always have loved her books. Um, and that's Louisa May Alcott, and that is
0: from where her um, her four hospital sketches came, uh, based on her experiences in hospitals. And I love the protagonist that uh, she named here, which is Tribulation Periwinkle, is the nurse who wanted to do something, and so therefore became. A nurse and what a
1: name
0: right <laughs> it's it's so good it is so good and for someone who's more familiar with the um the little women of it all the name is just so jarring because she's usually just like joe amy meg <laughs> Yes. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> um but so yes she uh served as a nurse in the union hospital in georgetown uh so dc Uh, Only for six weeks, though. That's from 1862 to around 1863, so kind of at the end of the year. Um, Her intention was to serve for three months. Um, However, halfway through, she uh, contracted typhoid and uh, pretty much barely uh, survived. And I believe she even said in her own writings later, um, she was never ill before, but she was never well afterward. Um, And so uh, though she only worked... at the hospital for six weeks, she suffered the symptoms for the rest of her life, um, much like many others who uh, fought or served um, both Union and Confederate armies, uh, were left with these wounds for a lot longer than just their um, short period. Uh, But that being said, from her six weeks there, she was able to um, revise her letters home, publish them in the Boston anti-slavery paper, The Commonwealth. And so Hospital Sketches was published in 1863, published in 1869 um, they said she was very funny she's writing about um, the indifference of some of the surgeons her passion for seeing the war um, hospital m- mismanagement which uh, trust me every single superintendent nurse will be um, complaining about hospital m- mismanagement and the women always think they can do way better at it than the general in charge and sometimes I do think they're correct
1: um, <laughs> probably all
0: <laughs> um and so uh what's really funny is that um Alcott was she didn't like them. <laughs> she did not like these hospital sketches. She thought they were kind of dumb. Um, she even said quote uh, yeah I pulled up quotes for y'all I cannot see why people like a few extracts from topsy-turvy letters written on inverted tea kettles waiting for gruel to warm or poultices to cool or for boys to wake and be tormented Uh, so basically she was like why do y'all like this so much
2: Um, (laughs) I love her I really do she's
0: so great that's some
1: serious shade there
0: right like why do y'all enjoy the monotony of what i experienced but also i think she even said at one point and this is me paraphrasing like i wanted money (laughs) (laughs) and she she eventually later on after it received such good view uh, reviews um people called it charming pictures of pictures of hospital service um lively wit, quiet humor. Um, she eventually said, I find I've done a good thing without knowing it because it did make people more passionate about helping out in hospitals. So a six-month month tenure, six-month God, six-week tenure and stories that she thought were dumb but needed money for uh, turned out to actually have an impact much uh, far beyond just her own work, which is very cool
1: have to ask why are these nurses so important in a modern context
0: right so this is where um i get a little a little soapboxy before i get super soapboxy i do want to say um they are instrumental within first the civil war field which is talking so much about um ptsd and trauma and suicide after the fact but they're not looking as much uh i don't like to speak in absolutes because you know someone's gonna just find me on twitter and be like actually yeah um, oh don't they always uh, always always but less attention is being paid to the non-soldiers who experienced trauma as a result of the civil war and so when you see people like cornelia hancock who is saying that um even the screams of agony did not make an impression on her. And she said, I could stand by and see a man's head taken off and I feel assured I shall never, never feel horrified at anything that may happen to me hereafter. And even when she gets um, letters from home about someone who died just of a normal sickness, she just says it does not appear to me as if one death is anything to me now. Um, so basically it was like sucks for that neighbor uh, I deal with five dead people a day um and so this this callousness is actually kind of an emotional safeguard to what I think is trauma so i it 's important that we look at not just the soldiers but how the civil war affected everyone with this scale of dying and um my my historian hero um i just I love everything she writes. Uh, Drew Gilpin Faust even wrote a book about this Republic of Suffering, which is just what that much death did to America. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so on one hand, I, it's me just kind of telling my, my Civil War friends to like, hey, remember, it wasn't just the soldiers uh, when we look at kind of
1: these traumas and things like this.
0: But then on a greater scale... Um,
1: Do here's... it. Go full soapbox. This is your <laughs> moment.
0: Okay, here I go. <laughs> uh, it's when, when I teach kind of just intro level history courses, I see a lot of um, usually young women who really want to look for kind of, um, quote, girl power in the past or um, early feminism and things like that. And so women doing anything that men can do and just as well and kind of this thing that we see as feminism and gender equality today where... In this, and in this time period, sure, we had women who fought as soldiers and women who were surgeons and Harriet Tubman defying every single gender norm to be the first woman to lead a um, U.S. raid uh, with the U.S. Army when she did the Combahee Ferry raid and freed all of those South Carolinians. Um, but even when suffrage was achieved in the U S and, um, Oh gosh, I think it's today. I think today, uh, the 18th might be the centennial. Um, either way it's, it's coming up, um, to the day. Um, even then a lot of them campaigned for suffrage on the belief that women did have this inherent difference and that women's pureness and piety could actually clean up the ballot box. And we could be the ones who would, um, make it a better and more proper place. Um, and so there is the belief that women should use their inherent traits of goodness and purity and caring like for a very, very long time. And it's when Alice Paul, um, short on the heels of suffrage proposes, um, an equal rights amendment, she is scoffed at, uh, she never, never drops it, but, um, and so when I look back, I think there's also something valuable to be seen in women who took the very popular social ideas of what it meant to be a woman and used that to their advantage to kind of get outside of the system, if that makes sense. I mean, there's a reason why the first jobs you see for American women in which it is acceptable for them to go out of their sphere rather than financially necessary and therefore shameful. Um, it's nursing, it's social work, it's teaching. It's all of these things that could be done by um, a pious woman who cares about her home and community and children, and then just extending that out into the public sphere. Um, And then they were blocked from going from nursing to doctors because that's too official. Um, And so I'm really interested in these women that were not surgeons in the civil war they dressed nasty bandages they made sure that the men were clean and fed and got all the supplies um they did the laundry they performed zero surgeries but they held men's hands and prayed for them and so when i show that to my students sometimes they're just like okay they did these really sexist things and that's supposed to be meaningful and when you look into the actual like sensory and emotional effects of what they did on the soldiers especially when depression could kill you or get you sent home. Mm. This action was revolutionary and I think critical. Um, And I think especially today with the role of touch and how it can help people become more well, um, especially as hospitals get increasingly sterile, um, how touch helps newborns. um, I, I think basically put some respect on the name of civil war nurses who sure aren't doing amputations, but honestly, with the beliefs of medicine in that time period, keeping a man clean might be more helpful than like some of the weird stuff that doctors
1: are doing. It's been absolutely brilliant to learn more about women in the Civil War. And I like your point, I do, that they're not looking for equality. I like it. They're not like, we want to be equal to men. They're like, let us in because we'll do it better. Yep, pretty much. Like there yep. are inherent things
0: about us. And it it is, today would be anti-feminist, but that's how they
2: saw it back then, so... Yeah,
1: you can't rewrite history, can you?
2: No, no. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us and telling us more about women uh, from the Civil War. Because we don't hear enough about women from the Civil War. <laughs> um, actually, very little. We've had nothing so far, have we? Yeah, had this is it. No. So thank you for filling us a nice gap of uh, of women, and of course, talking about my favourite uh, author. So I'm very happy. Thank you so okay. much for joining us.
0: Oh, of course. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Join us on Monday when the legend that is Phil Weir will be torturing Alina with naval history and telling us all about why the Navy deserves all the credit for the Battle of Britain. That's not actually what he says, but that's what I've been marketing it as because his academic head is basically exploding. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello
0: to Quince.